Amen. Great. Great worship, as always. Luke chapter 8 tonight. Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. Should be outlines all around the table. Every table should have a couple extra if you need need some outlines. There's some down here at this table and some over here. Before we dive into tonight, I, I just want to say again, just thank you for Sunday. It, I, I was, I, I'm still just very uh, humbled and just thank you guys so much for Sunday. It was very special and for all those that made that possible and it, it's just great to be the pastor of such a wonderful group of people. Luke chapter 8, as we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke, and you'll notice here in the first three verses, we sort of see the core of Jesus' ministry. His ministry, first of all, starts, uh, Luke tells us, by the fact that he goes around towns and villages preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. He's preaching the kingdom. And the word kingdom means the royal power, reign, and rule of God. In other words, Jesus is reminding people, God reigns. God is reigning. God wants to reign over your life, but God reigns. Whether you acknowledge that He reigns, He reigns. And throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus was exhibiting the royal power of God, that God is in control of this universe and that there is no power greater than God's power and that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. You'll also notice another sort of core of Jesus' ministry is that the twelve disciples, verse 1, were with Him. We could read that and pass over that, but that is the essence of discipleship. Discipleship is not something formal, where like today, a lot of people go, I'm going through a discipleship class, and I'm not anti-discipleship class, don't get me wrong. But in the Bible, when God was discipling, when he was training, it was a lifestyle. And it wasn't necessarily formal where he would sit his disciples down and say, now I'm going to teach you how to be my disciples. I mean, there were times of teaching. But most of the time, he just wanted his disciples to be with him. In the moments of life, as he dealt with things. How would he react? How would he respond? What was he doing now? Oh, he's going up again into the mountain and praying. And he modeled what a follower of God looked like. He modeled what it was before them. As I've said many times, faith is caught more than taught. And not that we don't need teaching. Obviously, teaching is important but the essence, the core of Jesus' ministry was these men spent every day with Jesus for pretty much three years. 
And they learned a lot just being with Jesus. I think the point I want to emphasize tonight is that's all God wants. God wants us to just be with Him. He wants us to spend time with Him. In His presence. In fellowship with Him. Soaking up His presence. We're going to see in a couple weeks where Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's what God wants. He wants us simply to be with Him and allow our time with Him to transform us into being more like Jesus. Another core of Jesus' ministry was the access and support of women. You and I today can't truly appreciate this, but for a Jewish woman 2,000 years ago to have access to a religious teacher was unheard of. Women weren't allowed to get near teachers, and teachers weren't supposed to have women get near them. So for Jesus to allow women, in a sense, into his inner circle, to have absolute access to him was just totally unheard of. It elevated, in a sense, women. And you'll notice here that these women, along with many others, really were the backbone of supporting Jesus' ministry. I'm just going to read this because it's so good. Verse 2. Also, some woman who had been healed of evil spirits and disabilities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager. Many people wonder, how did Luke have insight into what was going on into Herod's house? Well, because Herod's household manager became a follower of Jesus, and she probably gave them great insight into what was going on in King Herod's household. There was also a woman by the name of Susanna and many others who, notice, provided for for them out of their own resources. These women were the ones that kept this band pretty much going, materially and financially. And the thing I want to point out, that why they're a great example and model for us, is the word resources there... Literally in the Greek means ready and at hand. In other words, they're a great example for us that God wants us to manage our resources in a way that when, when there is a need, we have something on hand to be able to meet that need. Instead of going beyond our means and not having anything at hand when God shows us a need and we go, well, I'd like to help, but... I got nothing. These women had managed their resources in such a way that they were able, they had something at hand that when Jesus and his disciples came along and they began to follow it. And let me say this too, it was unheard of for women in that culture to leave their family and their homes and and wander around with the religious teacher. That was unheard of. You just didn't do that, you know. Um, and so what a great example, and, and we know down through church history that, uh, you know, women many times are the, the backbone of many churches and, and the backbone of ministries. And certainly, you know, we want men to step up and to be leaders and to get involved. But we know that down through history, uh, ministry would not have happened without 
women and their support. And, and I love the fact that Jesus gave these women access. Access right into the very inner circle. And this is here showing us, in a sense, the core of Jesus' ministry and how it operated. But then we go in verse 4 to the parable of the sower. I'm not going to take time to go down through and, you know, obviously read the whole parable, but I want to get actually to the meaning. Beginning in verse 11, Jesus begins to tell us what the parable means. And he says, the seed is the word of God. And the point of the parable isn't so much who the sower is and what the seed is, as much as the, the emphasis in this parable is on the soil. What kind of soil? And you'll notice there in the notes, I put, there's really only two different kinds of, of belief that Jesus is talking about here in this parable. Superficial belief and genuine belief. And the superficial belief was modeled by the seed that fell amongst the pathway, uh, fell on the rock, and then uh, fell amongst thorns. In fact, I'll, I'll read it. He says, those, verse 12, along the path are the ones who have heard, The devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in a time of testing, fall away. As for the seed that fell among thorns, these are the ones who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the worries and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. So you'll notice. The first three types of soil really are illustrating superficial belief. It lays on the surface, really doesn't take root, never produces any fruit. And what Jesus is is teaching here in this very important parable is that, you know, there's always going to be a lot of superficial belief. Oh yeah, I believe. I believe in God. But... Only a few really take in the seed of the Word of God and genuinely believe. And what does it mean to genuinely believe? Instead of being uh, satisfied with letting things just sit on the surface. Well, I've encouraged us here in this month, in fact, starting in November, we're not going to put the challenge in the bulletin anymore, but... Back in September, we sort of laid out a spiritual growth challenge, and one aspect of that was that we take more time to absorb what we're getting. And especially, I said, it's easy here to me at the Oasis, since we're into the Word of God on Sunday and Tuesday, take time to just go back and absorb Sunday and Tuesday's passage or Sunday and Tuesday's message and absorb that into your being instead of continuing to add more Let it absorb in there and really go down deep and take root. And Jesus talks about this in verse 15. Notice he says, As for those seed that landed on good soil, these are the ones who, after hearing the word, cling to it. Genuine believers will cling to, or literally keep firm possession of the word. There's a time in our life where no matter what's hitting us, no matter what's choking us, no matter what's trying to distract us, we cling, we keep hold of the Word of God and we don't let it go. Another aspect of genuine belief, he says, is not only do they hear the Word of God and cling to it, but they cling to it with an honest and good heart. 
The words honest and good heart simply means suitably prepared and agreeable. In other words, the soil of the heart is prepared. It, it, is, it is soft. It is pliable. Going back to Sunday's message about being broken. It is a heart that God and His Word can penetrate and go down deep. That's genuine, leading to genuine belief. And then the third aspect, bearing fruit or bringing forth deeds. It's not just a matter of hearing it, it's a matter of acting on it, carrying it out, doing something with it. And then notice the final aspect, with steadfast endurance. In other words, part of... How do we know someone, how do we know we're genuine believers when we persevere, when we endure, when we don't, you know, give up, when there's that constancy, constancy in our lives, that steadfastness? That's what he's talking about here. We cling to it. We allow our hearts to be penetrable. We bring forth deeds and we do it with perseverance and endurance. That's the signs of genuine belief rather than superficial belief. Superficial belief is easily distracted. We talked about this Sunday, how undivided hearts are waveringly inconsistent. They'll be close to God and they'll be faithful to church and you know they'll read and they'll pray and they'll be on fire for God for a while and then couple months down the road, back. And it's that back and forth, that roller coaster Christianity. I'm way up and then I'm way down. And then there's no consistency. There's no constancy. That's what genuine belief is. Because when it just sits there on the surface, there's too many things that can be driving us and distracting us and taking us in all these different directions. That doesn't lead to stability. And so Jesus here is really teaching us about the contrast between superficial belief and genuine belief. And what are the aspects of genuine belief? Which then leads in verse 16 to the parable of the lamp. Jesus said, no one lights a lamp and then covers it with a jar, puts it under a bed, but puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in can see the light. And... Jesus there is telling us that we need to intentionally illuminate those around us. That's why He's given us light. That's why He calls us light. He wants us to shine. He wants us to be luminaries to everyone around us. He wants us to take His light wherever we go. But in order for us to illuminate and take God's light wherever we go, that means we've got to obviously let God's light shine on us. And we've got to focus on that light, on that revelation. Now before I read verse 17, let me share with you how misinterpreting Scripture can lead to all kinds of just scary ends. I grew up in a church that taught that one day, even, even if you're a Christian, when you get to heaven, everything you've ever done, everything in secret, everything that only you and God knew about was one day going to be put up on a screen for everybody to see. 
And you know where they got that from, or at least one of the verses they got that from? The very next verse. And they take this verse completely out of the context that it's in. That's why studying the Word of God in context is so important. Because if you read this verse out of context, you, I can see how they could get to that whenever Jesus said, Nothing is hidden that will not be revealed and nothing concealed that will not be made known and brought to light. But it has nothing to do with us. He's talking about his revelation. He's talking about the fact that in the Old Testament and stuff, God had hidden things. That's what they call the mysteries. But now God is revealing things in his word and he's going to bring all these hidden things to light so that we can illuminate those around us and familiarize ourselves with God's light and with his revelation. And the psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. The Bible says about itself, God's light, God's revelation, it's a light. And then when you take Jesus' words in the very next verse, you can see what, where this fits in because that's when he says, so listen carefully. And the words listen carefully mean to direct the mind or to focus. In other words, Jesus is teaching here, focus on God's revelation. Focus on the light. Direct your mind towards the light so that you can better illuminate those around you. Because Jesus gives us a promise for those of us who do direct our minds to God's revelation and focus on it. Notice what he says. If we listen carefully, then whoever has will be given more. In other words, the more you and I look into his word, the more you and I focus on this revelation, the more understanding and comprehension, the more we grasp. He promises us that. If we will focus here, He'll give us more. If we respond to the light we have, He gives us more light. But notice what He also goes on to say. Whoever does not have. In other words, their focus isn't on God's Word. And they're not responding to the light they've already been given then notice what he says. Even what he thinks he has will be taken from him. That's interesting. In other words, Jesus is really saying, they don't know the word as much as they think they know the word, but even what they think they have is going to be taken. Because what we don't use in our Christian life, in a sense, we do lose it. And unless we're into the Word of God and applying it on a regular basis, we're going to lose even what we maybe used to have if we don't continue with it. So this parable of the lamp is all about how we respond to God's revelation. And it all goes back to the very first verse in this parable, verse 16, about the whole reason why God's given us revelation and why he's uncovered things that were once hidden and why he's shared this with us. It's so we can take God's light, God's revelation, and illuminate it to everyone around us. So I think one challenge before us is to just make sure who, who does God want us to be illuminating? in our lives. Is there somebody specific? Maybe not. Maybe, maybe there isn't anyone or someone specific in our lives right now, but I guarantee you one thing. God is not going to want us to focus on his word like we are on Sundays and Tuesdays and hopefully every other day of the week and then not use us to illuminate someone else. Because 
when God shares his word with us and, and we gain greater understanding, it's not just supposed to sit with us. We're just to simply be a conduit, a channel, an instrument for God's word to go out to others. That's why God expects all of us to share his word. We all may not have, have been given the gift of teaching formally to stand up and necessarily teach the word of God, but God expects all Christians to share the word as they learn it, as they grow in it, as they see more things. God wants us to take that and illuminate those around us. Which leads to this great story. Oh, wait a minute, I skipped something. I got so excited. Verse 19 and 20 and 21, because this goes really with the parable of the lamp about applying God's revelation. Jesus' mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not get near him because of the crowd. So he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. But he replied to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's why I put there, applying God's revelation is also in this context. Not just illuminating but focusing and applying God's revelation. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's not so much about the physical connection that I have with people. What's more important than the physical connection I have with people is the spiritual connection. Are they carrying out the Word of God? Are they applying it? And at this point, many people in his family did not believe in him at this point. And that's why you and I, we understand that. Because we have family members, but we understand that if they're not a Christian yet, that we actually have way more in common and better fellowship with people that aren't family members, but are our family members through Christ than we do our physical family. And in a sense, that's what Jesus is simply pointing out. I have more in common, if you will, more fellowship with those who carry out and execute what I'm saying, than those who are just physically my family. Then we get to this really good story about the stilling of the storm. I'm just going to read this. One day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. Now a violent windstorm came down on the lake and the boat started filling up with water and they were in danger. They came and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are about to die. So he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. They died down, and it was calm. Then he said to them, Where is your faith? But they were afraid and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. couple things. First of all, I want you to be encouraged tonight. Notice there in the notes, Storms hit when serving Christ. Sometimes Christians, I think, get the idea that if I'm doing everything I should be doing, and I'm doing what God wants, I'm listening to Jesus' voice, I avoid the storms. Well, that's not biblical. In fact, you'll notice here in this story, Jesus is the one that told them, let's go into the boat. And it was actually because they were listening to Jesus that they were out in the middle of the water when the storm came. Storms will hit when we serve Christ. But notice, 
Jesus wants us to realize that the Lord is with us in the storm. He was there. He was asleep. But he was there. And there's where the problem comes in, though. Because, like the disciples, we can, we can know that, in a sense, Jesus is there. But is he really there? Is he really engaged? That's more the problem. Because even for them, they could physically see he's in the boat with them. But obviously, because he was asleep, they didn't think he was engaged. That's the way you and I get many times when we're going through a storm in life and God is maybe silent. And, and, and it doesn't seem like anything is changing. And all of a sudden we go to the same place the disciples go. Don't you care? We're about ready to die here and it doesn't seem like you're doing anything. But what we have to remember is just because it may seem that God is asleep, just because it may seem like God is in unengaged or disengaged and nothing is changing, he's still there in the storm. And what Jesus wants us and the disciples to get to a place of is not necessarily where we're trusting his presence and trusting being able to even feel his presence and see him do something. Jesus wants us to get to the point, like his disciples, where we trust in his word in the midst of the storms. That's why when he woke up, he said to them, where's your faith? Because the faith should have been in his word. Not in the storm calming down. Not in Jesus not being asleep but in what Jesus had already told them. He already told them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. In a sense, Jesus had already promised them that they were going to get to the other side of the lake. And even though they hit a storm in the middle of the lake, they were trusting more in something else than in what Jesus had already said. And again... You and I can relate to that. Because there's times where we go through storms in our life and we know the promises of the Bible. We could quote them. We know what God says and yet at that moment, we're not really putting our confidence and trust in His Word. We want Him to do something. We want to see something. We want to have some kind of evidence. And yet He's there all the time and He's already told us, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And yet... Where's our faith? God wants to build us to a place where our faith is not in what we see or don't see, but in His Word. The just shall live by faith. And God doesn't want us to walk by sight, but by faith. Faith in His Word. And that's why He says to the disciples, where's your faith? But then you'll notice another encouragement here, I think, because we all go through storms. And that is that storms provide opportunity for growth. Because you'll notice then, after Jesus calmed the raging waves, and the Bible says that they were all afraid and amazed, they say to one another, 
who is this? And what was happening was their view of Christ was going up. We just sang, I will exalt thee. And, and in a sense, the experience of this storm was exalting who Jesus was in their own minds and hearts. They were beginning to see Jesus in a different light because of going through the storm with him. And that's what Jesus wants us to see. I'll be there with you in the storm. I'm not going to go anywhere. And you just need to learn to trust in my word. And as you go through this storm with me, you're going to see me in a different light. And you're going to grow in your faith. And you're going to be stronger having went through the storm than me taking the storm away. Or having you not go through it at all. And so, Jesus gives great, great teaching there and and a great example in dealing with the storms of life. I want to get here then to the transforming power of Jesus. When they got off the boat in the region of the Gerasenes there in verse 26, he was met by a demon-possessed man. I'm not going to read all that the demon-possessed man was going through. I actually want to get to the reaction of the townsfolk. If you know the story, the, 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 the demon-possessed man, all the demons within this man begged Jesus, you know, don't send us to the bottomless pit yet. You know, allow us to go into these pigs if you're going to cast us out. And so Jesus cast them out of the pigs, and the pigs ran off the, the mountainside and, you know, went into the water. And of course, all those pigs meant money. <laughs> that was part of the economy in that region. So notice in verse 35, the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus. And they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the man who had been demon-possessed had been healed. Now notice this, this is important. Then all the people of the Gerasenes and the surrounding region asked Jesus to leave them alone. For they were seized with great fear. And notice what Jesus did. Did he stay and go, guys, come on, you know who I am. I'm just here to help. No, he just got in the boat and left. One of the things that Jesus teaches me and I think teaches all of us, minister to those who are receptive to your ministry. Don't, 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 take, don't spend a lot of energy on trying to chase down people that aren't receptive. Jesus never did that. Jesus never once begged people to come, you know, hear him or to chase people when they were... They, they knew where he was. And if they wanted... What he had to offer, great. But if they didn't, he went somewhere else. There were plenty of other people that were going to be receptive. But I want to get back to the reaction of the the people. Jesus has just healed this man who had been possessed by demons for years, and he's healed. And, And you would think, wouldn't you, that after seeing this great transforming power and what Jesus could do, that it'd be just the opposite. Jesus, won't you stay forever? This is great. We want you here. No, it was just the opposite. Why? 
Because when God moves in our lives, He disturbs things. He brings change. And guess what? Just like many people today, they really don't want things to change. They want things to stay in their life status quo. They don't want to be disturbed. They like the way their miserable life is without Jesus. And so they basically say to God, God, I got this. I'm okay without you. I don't need you. Go someplace else. And the fear that they were exhibiting was a fear of change, a fear that if Jesus stayed, more change was coming. More disturbance was coming. And yet that's what Jesus always brings. You know that to be true in your own life. When you and I get serious about spiritual growth, nothing stays the same. Things start to change in our life. We start to see things different. We start to act different. We start to talk different. Everything changes in our life when we surrender our life to Jesus Christ. He disturbs things. Same thing is true in a church. Guess what? You start having people in a local church start to, start to grow and, and, and start to get serious about God. Guess what happens? Disturbance. Change. And there's going to be people that go, ah, we want things the way it used to be. Can't we just keep things the way they are? But that's not what Christ transforming power is all about. It's about making us every day more like Him. And that means change. The whole the Christian life is nothing but change. If we don't want to change, then we should have never become a Christian. Because becoming a follower of Jesus Christ means a lifetime of change. Then you'll notice in the story the relating of God's transforming power. Because the Bible says in verse 38 that the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying... Return to your home and declare, literally relate in full detail what God has done for you. That's what God wants from us, wherever he sends us. He wants us who have been recipients of his transforming power to simply relate what Jesus is doing in our lives and what he's done. That's why every one of us has a testimony. That's why even the man who had just been cured of his blindness, he was a great testimony. He just said, Once I was blind, now I see. That's pretty great. Who did it? That guy over there, his name's Jesus. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole town what Jesus had done for him. He related God's transforming power. We need to be willing to tell others what God's power is doing in our lives. That's part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Six minutes, I can do this. From from fear to faith, there are two miracles that are intertwined in the last section then of Luke chapter 8. The women with the hemorrhage of blood and the uh, Jairus' daughter who is raised from the dead. So let's take these. These are, these are really uh, good stories. The Bible says when Jesus returned, verse 40, the crowd welcomed him because they were all waiting for him. 
Then a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, came up. Falling at Jesus' feet, he pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds pressed around him. Now a woman was there who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years, but could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus, touched the edge of his cloak, and at once the bleeding stopped. Then Jesus asked, who was it who touched me? When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are surrounding you and pressing against you. In other words, duh, Jesus, there's like a thousand people who've touched you. But Jesus said, no, someone touched me, for I know that power has gone out from me. Power for healing, miracle working power. When the woman saw that she could not escape notice, she came trembling and fell down before him in the presence of all the people. She explained why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the synagogue ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any longer. But when Jesus heard this, he told them, do not be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. Now, when he came to the house, Jesus did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John and James and the child's father and mother. They were all waiting and mourning for her. But he said, stop your weeping. She's not dead, but asleep. Simply, this is a temporary condition. And they began making fun of him because they knew that she was dead. But Jesus gently took her by the hand and said, child, get up. Her spirit returned and she got up immediately and he told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished and he ordered them not to tell no one or to tell them, excuse me, to tell no one what had happened. Real quickly, two intertwining miracles here. And the reason I put from fear to faith is for this reason. As you read the story, you saw where, in a sense, this woman with the issue of blood tried to sort of steal a miracle, steal a healing. She had the faith to believe if I could just get to Jesus and touch him, I believe I would be healed. But maybe she was embarrassed because of what she was dealing with. We don't know exactly, but she didn't want to come forward. And Jesus is not going to permit people to get close to him and be part of his transforming power and do it silently, do it concealed, do it in secret. That's not the way God works. And so even though she was fearful of sort of putting herself out there for whatever reason, Jesus, in a sense, was going to call her out because he wanted to encourage her and he wanted her to have the opportunity to share her testimony with the crowd that was thronging around. So much more we could say there. Read it for yourself. I want to get to this. The fear that Jairus had, you and I could only imagine as a parent. First of all, we're desperate. Our only daughter is dying. And we believe that if Jesus would maybe get there before she died, that Jesus could prevent her from dying. But maybe unlike the centurion last week, Jairus doesn't have the faith to believe that if Jesus just spoke the word or if he was at a distance, he could heal her no matter what or raise her from the dead. So his faith hadn't gotten quite to that point yet, but at least his faith was the fact that here's the man that can do something about it. And if he just gets there before she dies, I believe he could prevent this from happening. That's why he did what he did. 
The fear is, can you imagine what was going through Jairus as, okay, they're, they're desperate. They need Jesus to get there. And all of a sudden, as they're trying to get to his house, this crowd, this multitude of people, this throng is basically around Jesus to the point where they can't make any. T- so for us, it would be like we really want to get somewhere quickly. And all of a sudden, there's a traffic jam in front of us. Now, maybe you don't have a problem with things like that. My wife will tell you that I struggle in times like that. And you can only imagine and with what's on the line, just like, oh my goodness. And then for Jesus to take time with this woman, he's, I'm sure if he's honest, like we would be, we go, okay, she has an issue of blood. I get that 12 years, but my daughter's dying. Come on, Jesus. Get to my house. Don't you realize the urgency here? And Jesus is trying to teach Jairus and everyone around. My timing is my timing. And I'll get there at the right time. And it's not going to be your time. But that's where your fear has to grow into faith. Because you've got to learn that my timing in doing things isn't always going to be on your timetable. Which I'm sure Jairus really got to that point whenever the delegation came back and said, well, don't even bother, she's dead. Jesus is like, so? Let's go. Because he knew what he was going to do. And every once in a while when I'm reading the Gospels, there's times it's like, I wish I could be there. I wish I could have been in that room with that mom and that dad and that 12-year-old girl and Peter, James, and John and Jesus when Jesus looks down at that little girl and says, get up. And she rises from the dead. One other thing. Many people question, why does Jesus tell this couple Not to tell anybody. Why are there times where Jesus, when he heals somebody or does something good, he tells them go and and share it, and other times he doesn't? In his wisdom, he knew who to entrust that with and who not to entrust it with, and Jesus was not about being a grandstander. His ministry was not wrapped up in miracles. He did not want to be known as the guy that was just going around the countryside Raising people from the dead. Because that's not why he came. For every person that Jesus rose from the dead and he only raised a couple people from the dead while he was on earth, think of the hundreds of people that he didn't raise from the dead. Because it wasn't about healing people and raising from the dead. They were simply confirmation of who he was. They pointed to the fact he's the Messiah. But he didn't want to be known for that. He didn't want this. It was already bad enough that the people of Israel thought he was the one that was coming to deliver them from Rome. He wanted to try to squelch that as much as possible because that's not why he came. He didn't come to overthrow Rome. He didn't come to raise everybody on earth from the dead. He didn't come to heal everybody who was sick. He came to die for the sins of the world. That's why he came. And so that's why he would choose at times to say... You go tell, but no, keep it to yourself. It's only going to make the crowds even crazier and bigger, and that's not why I came. I didn't come to 
produce a Barnum and Bailey circus around Palestine. I came to reveal God to human beings. I came to be the light of the world. I came to die on the cross for sin. That's why I came. Tonight, leave you with this. Going back to the storm. If you and I aren't going through a storm right now, we will. Don't be discouraged when you hit a storm. Storms aren't necessarily uh, a, a mark that I must have done something wrong. I must have messed up. No. There are many times where we're actually doing what Jesus tells us to do, just like the disciples, and we're going to go into a storm because storms are opportunities for growth. Storms are opportunities for us to see Jesus in a greater and clearer light. And in those storms, God wants us to know that He is with us in the storm, even if it seems like He's asleep. But more than anything, God wants us to trust in His Word in the storms. What He's already said to us. Going back to the... He wants us to cling to it. That's genuine belief. Clinging to the Word of God with perseverance and endurance. Let's pray. God, thank You for the ministry of Jesus Christ. For the lives that He impacted. For the lives that He touched. For the miracles and the healings that He did. But most of all, Lord, for the light that He brought to mankind. He is the light of the world. And everywhere He went, He brought light. God, help us as we soak in the light of Christ into our own life. Help us to go out and be light and illuminate those around us. Even the rest of this week, may we come in contact with people who are in darkness And may you use our lives to light up their life and illuminate them to the love, the power, the grace, the mercy, the strength, the power of God that could be true in their lives if they would just simply open up their hearts to Jesus. God, help us to trust you in the storms. Help us to know you are there even if we don't sense or feel your presence. But help us most of all to trust in your word. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for being here tonight. Have a great rest of the week.